My name is Tracy Carpenter and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, welcome. We are glad that you tuned in. We believe that the church is a family and not just an event, and so we would love to connect with you. Uh, there are a few ways that you can do that. The first being um, through our website, which is www.restoredtemecula.church, um, and then click on contact. We also have a mobile app that you can get in the Apple or the Android app stores, and through that app you can see past um, messages, upcoming events, and other ways for us to connect. Um, so with all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. I was away last Sunday and I just, I told, I think I told um, the band this morning, I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I've been like starving to be in God's presence with God's people and oh, this morning has been so good for me already and it's about to get a whole lot better. So what I want to do is I want to introduce uh, Mark in just a minute, but there's something that you need to know about Mark. Not only is he my spiritual brother, he's my biological brother, so there's something really I ah, just love him so much. Uh, but more than that, for all intensive purposes, like this church probably wouldn't exist. It certainly wouldn't exist in the way that it does now without Mark, without his family, without Mark and Cassie, the sacrifices that they've made. Uh, Mark has made such significant investments into the life and the health of our church, guys. And most of them, not, not, not most of them, but a lot of them, you probably won't ever know about. Um, he has significantly, he's storing up treasures in heaven for the sacrifices that he's made um, to see our church established, to see our church grow, to see our church um, hopefully maintain health, all these different things. Mark's on our staff. He uh, serves as our worship director, oversees a bunch of things. He's our chief, our chief of staff. He runs our staff meetings, all these things. So he provides so much service so much care to our community. Um, and the reason I share all that isn't to like make Mark look like this big hero, although he's an amazing, wonderful human being and such a gift to all of us. Um, but he's experienced the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus throughout his life in such profound ways that it's like it's significantly impacted him. Uh, he's been preparing this message for months now. Um, and I'm so, I'm genuinely excited for you to hear this because I think it's fire. And when I say it's fire, I'm not just trying to be hip and cool. Like, it, it is that, but it's, fire has a way of refining things, doesn't it? Fire has a way of revealing some of the things inside impurities often, and sometimes, God willing, burning those things away so that you have something left that's pure. And that's my hope and my prayer. And I believe that for many of us in the room, God's going to utilize Mark's words, his message this morning, because it's ultimately God's word Mark's going to present to us in a way that, that refines some of us, many of us. Dare I say, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, all of us in the room. And so I'm really, really excited. Guys, would you, would you honor him and bless him as he comes up? Just give, give him some love. Make him some noise for him. Uh, he's such a gift to us. Come on up, buddy. Yes, yes. Um, so I want to I pray for him. I want to pray over him. Will you join me in blessing? Let's pray over our brother here. 
Father, I'd like to thank you for this man. He's such a gift to so many of us. I ask you right now that you'd like fill him with your spirit, Jesus. Remind him of his worth. Give him your words, your wisdom. Fill him with power for us. Refine us through your word, through his mouth this morning, we pray. And I pray that he would feel um, a ton of your pleasure and your love as he continually puts himself in position, as he continually like, uh, pursues obeying you, even when it's challenging. I thank you that this message is not just the message of him you know, developing content and trying to package the Bible truths so that we're, it's digestible, but like this is a message he's lived. This message has actually been like costly for him in his life, so it comes from a place of authenticity um, but integrity because it's not just a you guys should do this message. It's a, he's lived it. And I thank you for his faith. I thank you for his service to us and ultimately to you. And I just pray blessing over this room. Would you be present, Holy Spirit, right now? Would you give every single one of us eyes to see you more clearly, ears to hear you more accurately? Refine us, make us more like Jesus. Free us from the bondage of brokenness and sin. So we can live, we can thrive as humans. That's what we want to do. And we know that Jesus, you're the way. You're the truth. You're the life. We want to thrive in you. So bless us. We love you and we love Mark. Amen. Amen. All right. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes? Yes. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't have anything prepared this morning. I was just going to do some voice acting for you as we read the text. But uh, I guess we're going to try to... No, I'm kidding. Um, I, real quick, just as he said, like this message, he's mentioned I've been preparing this for months. I really do feel like this is a message that God has been preparing for months, even more than me. Like, not that I've been proactively like, ooh, this is going to be a message someday. It's like God's been doing things and there's been circumstances and things... Uh, that really has birthed this message this, this morning for us. And so I believe that God has this for us in this unique moment, um, something special through this text. And so my name, as Tom mentioned, is Mark Adam Logue. Um, I am married to the beautiful Cassie Logue. And we have two beautiful boys, Shepherd Dean Logue and Fisher Adam Logue. Uh, three years old and one year old, which is, uh, those of you giggling, I think you understand where I'm going with that. It's an adventure, it's fun, it's exciting, it's also daunting and exhausting. Um, And I've had the privilege of being a part of three of the restored family of churches at this point, so uh, it began to engage with the restored church in Uptown, just like Herrick mentioned, kind of the OG, um, the, the, the launch pad, if you will, for so many of the restored family of churches, all of them really. Um... And then was able to be a part of the, the South Bay community and now here in Temecula. And so I'm so privileged and just honored to be with you all this morning and that you guys would give me your ear and give me four to six hours of your time this morning is such <laughs> a pleasure. Um, and, and like Tom said, I have the privilege of being on staff too. So I really do feel privileged this morning to be here with you and privileged to share. So thank you for honoring me with your ears this morning. Today, we're going to pick back up a series that we uh, kind of uh, paused on several months ago. Uh, we called it The King and His Kingdom. 
uh, where we've been going through the book of Matthew and along the way comparing uh, the kingdom of heaven where Jesus is, is the ruler, he's the king, uh, and, and the world, right? We talked about how the opposite of heaven isn't actually hell, it's, it's earth. Heaven and earth are contrasted in the scripture, heaven and the world. We've talked about the differences between Jesus' kingdom and the world and how much better Jesus' kingdom is, where Jesus is the king and his rule is good and perfect. Uh, and we left off at the end of Matthew chapter 6, uh, and in the thick of arguably the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and today, we've got a pretty dense text that we're jumping into. It's, it's a bit heavy, uh, dives into a pretty hot button issue or topic, certainly in our world today, that is judging. Uh, how many of you have ever heard or said the phrase or something like, don't judge me? <laughs> or maybe something like, you're being so judgy right now. <laughs> or I feel like you're just judging me. Anybody? Right. A couple head nods. Okay, I got a hand raised in the back. Thank you. We're, okay, we're together. Good. There seems to almost always be a negative connotation to this, right? Like no one's ever like, yay, you're judging me. <laughs> oh, you're being so judgy right now. Right? Okay. Good. We're on the same page. I'd argue this is the case outside the church, certainly. We've all seen that in the world. But also inside the church, I think this is the case. Maybe primarily in the West, but I think it's the case. And it begs the question, should Christians do this? Should Christians judge? See, judgment is intrinsic to the message of the gospel. It's a part of the gospel message. It's essential. It belongs naturally, right? The gospel where God left, God the Son left his heavenly throne and took on flesh in the person of Jesus to live the perfect life that we could never live and die the brutal unjust death on the cross with nails through his limbs to take on the wrath of God, the penalty of our sin upon himself to then resurrect three days later in a radical declaration of victory over sin and death for all who believe on him for salvation from the penalty, power, and presence of sin, and so to take part in God's kingdom. Judgment is baked into the message of the gospel. It makes the judgment that all humans, since the fall, are plagued with and infected with the disease of sin. So the question is not whether or not God judges. He does perfectly. The question is, should Christians judge? Should we judge? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And I'll be reading out of the CSB. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible, uh, we'll jump in. But before we jump into the text, I just want to pray one more time. I can never get enough prayer, never get enough engagement with God. So would you pray for me? Would you pray for us? Would you pray for the time this morning that it would be fruitful? Let's pray together. <sighs> Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you that I have breath in my lungs this morning because of your, your common grace. Thank you that you, that, that you love me, that you love us, that you love each one like uniquely and specifically. Thank you that your, 
your love is unfailing and unwavering. Like even when I waver and falter, you are consistent and faithful and perfect. And Holy Spirit, I just ask this morning that you would open all of us up, myself included, to what you want to do in us this morning. And I pray that that this message, that this would be your words and not mine. This wouldn't be something that I've conjured up, but that, that what's declared or at least what's captured this morning in the hearts and minds of this community, of this church family and all who would participate in listening right now in this moment that like it would be your uh, will this morning that would be accomplished. And so I pray to that end, Holy Spirit, that you'd open us up, that you'd have your way um, and that you would bring some sensitivity into this space now. Even now, I pray that you would begin to convict all of us of ways in which we're missing out on the beautiful reality of who you are to us, Father, of who you are to us, Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Lord, the perfect King. Yeah, so have your way. That's my prayer this morning. Um, We love you, God, and we come to you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Again, I'll be reading out of the CSB. Let's jump into this text. It's heavy, uh, but let's do it. Let's buckle up. Let's get, let's get real. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet. Turn and tear you to pieces. Okay. Today, I want to focus just on three things in light of this text. Three things that this text brings to light with regard to Christians judging. And again, these are Jesus' words here. This is his Sermon on the Mount. These are Jesus' words, every last one. And so, today we're going to focus just on three things. We're going to focus on permission, posture, and practice. Permission, posture, and practice. Let's jump in. First point, permission. Does a Christian have permission to judge? Well, based on a literal reading of just that first verse, one might be inclined to say it's clear, without a shadow of a doubt, Christians should never judge, right? Verse 1 says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Seems pretty clear. This verse is cited and used very often by those uh, within the church and certainly those outside of the church to say that we should never judge anyone. It's being used to say, do not evaluate me. Do not make a conclusion about me that paints me in a negative light. But we never wanna look at just one verse in the scripture and receive it literally without understanding the surrounding verses, the context, the whole story even of scripture. We can't just look at what something says we have to also look into what it means. Fair? Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. What does that mean? Let's first do a quick little look at language. The word judge used in the text. 
Okay, the, the text here was written in the Greek originally and translated for us into English, and we have the word judge. The word judge used here in do not judge so that you won't be judged is the, word, the Greek word krinete, and that means you all judge is how that's translated. And krinete comes from the root word krino. So if, if krinete is you all judge, krino is to judge, the verb, right? The word krino means to separate to judge or decide, and it was often used in reference to a legal decision that involved a form of punishment or condemnation, depending on its context, though. From the verb krino came the noun krites, or judge, right? So verb, judge, to judge, noun krino, or krites, judge like the position or the function, where we derive the word critic. There are actually several forms of this word used, all meaning about the same thing. However, the context in which they're used is important for defining the term. Very similarly to the word we have in English for judge, right? Depending on how that word is used in a sentence uh, will help define the term judge. There's kind of two primary definitions for this word, judge. It's to, one is to express complete disapproval and sentence someone to a particular punishment, Right? Think, think condemnation or, or fault-finding. The other is to discern between good and bad, right, wrong, to discern, to determine, to conclude, to evaluate. Does that make sense? So kind of two definitions, and that depends on the context in which it's used. Right? If you're sitting in a court of law, the javelin drops, that's a different form of judgment. Okay? The same word used here in Matthew 7 Crinete is used in John 7, chapter, or John chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus is addressing the way uh, in which people were judging and points out the flaw in their judgment of Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. And he makes a command on judgment. He says in verse 24, stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Rather, crinete, you all judge according to righteous judgment. And so the same word, is used in these two places in the New Testament where Jesus in Matthew says, do not judge, and in John chapter 7, he says, judge with righteous judgment. And so back to Matthew 7 here, let's hone in quick on verse 2, where we're going to get some really helpful context to help us define this term judge. Verse 2, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. The measure, the the measure in question is the level of condemnation, the harshness, or the punishment that is used. Jesus isn't saying don't evaluate or don't conclude. He's saying don't condemn. In short, he's saying here, reform how we judge. Don't refrain from it. Jesus is commanding reform not refrain. And guys, this is difficult. This is hard. Jesus' command here is challenging. It assumes confrontation. It assumes that we're going to get rubbed the wrong way. I found myself in a situation where I had some concern about someone I cared deeply about. This person recognized there was a pattern of inconsistency in their life There was a gap between his words and his actions, and it negatively impacted his discipleship to Jesus. It hurt his discipleship to Jesus and and left others feeling hurt and confused. 
And as he became aware of this, and, and I grew in awareness of this, I offered to support him in that. And he gave me permission to come alongside and help him uh, however I could. It was an opportunity for growth that we all agreed upon. And man, can I just say, getting to this point was really hard. It was really uncomfortable. It wasn't easy. There was fear present. I, I was afraid. This required that I open myself up to being rejected. It required time sitting in discomfort. And it took work. If I'm honest, sometimes I cared more about this person's approval and preserving his presence. My desire to keep him in close proximity and maybe even what he offered me rather than the health of our relationship to one another and ultimately to Jesus. I often gave in to fear of losing his approval, that he didn't distance himself from me or leave me altogether, and of rejection if I confronted concerns I had. In short, I was afraid of what this person would, would do or say if I shared my concern with him. And I think maybe you, we can relate to that on some level, right? Like the fear of being misunderstood is real. The fear of being misunderstood is real and it can keep us on the sidelines when Jesus is calling us to get in the game. See, but Jesus risked being misunderstood for my sake. And ultimately Jesus helped me see that this person was worth it too. That he was worth the discomfort. That he was worth the risk. So I was granted permission to come alongside him and help him in regard to spiritual growth. And um, almost immediately after communicating a desire to grow and granting me permission to help, I saw the same confusing, hurtful pattern of sin play out again. And so I moved toward him in love and I found myself conflicted yet again. Do I address this or not? Fear began to creep in again. But I moved toward this person and I shared my concern with him. And when I brought up my concern, hey, we talked about this and it, it looks like it may be a continuation of this pattern of sin that we talked about. In short, this person's response was basically, don't judge me. See, what I think happened is regardless of whether he would interpret this scripture intellectually the same way as me, this person practically fell into the misunderstanding around this text. The misunderstanding that Jesus was saying, don't conclude, don't evaluate me. But Jesus isn't saying don't conclude. He's saying don't condemn. Reform how we judge. Don't refrain. And man, if we don't get this, we will miss out on how God might want to grow us and others around us. If, if we miss out on this, we, we actually aren't a community that loves each other. We use each other for approval and validation and we violate the gospel. See, we have the approval of almighty God. That frees us up to love each other and not to use each other for approval or for validation. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to miss out on what God has for me and what he might have for us. 
Jesus isn't saying don't conclude. He's saying don't condemn. Reform, don't refrain. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, I have to ask you this question. Do you believe that this kind of judgment is good for you? Are you open to it? So if you're taking notes, that's my first point. We talked about permission. Jesus gives us permission to judge, but he calls us to reform how we judge in this text. Reform, not refrain. But what does the text say about this reforming? What does it look like? What does reformed judgment look like? What does it look like to judge rightly? That leads us to my second point, posture. What is the posture for the Christian when it comes to judging? I'll give you the punchline. Humility, not hypocrisy. Uh, I come from a very dense background professionally. That is to say, my resume has a lot of odd jobs on it. It's pretty long. Um, I'm one of those one-page resume guys, though, so it's always like, which careers am I going to pick to show this company or that? Um, Filling out my resume for this. No, I'm kidding. I didn't have a resume for this job. Uh, uh, But I come from a very dense background. That's to say I've had quite a lot of jobs across a variety of industries and functions. And I spent a lot of my early career in the manufacturing world. And in manufacturing and, frankly, in many industries, there's a large focus on this this idea or, or the strategy of continuous improvement. And I learned a lot about various continuous improvement methods and, and strategies for executing on different methods like Lean and Six Sigma and 5S. And we had Kaizen events. And I was a part of many of those Kaizen teams or Kaizen events. And what that is, it's just like a, it's like a, a thorough, top-down, kind of dedicated audit of a particular cell or, or like system or a process where you go through every little factor. Where's that tool go? What's this step look like? How are they going to move from this, you know, every shape and size of the process? And it was really fun for me. I found that I not only enjoyed this stuff, but I was actually pretty good at it. Like I had a natural bent toward it, diving into every facet of a system to look for opportunities to maximize productivity and to reduce waste. Come on. You've heard the language, you know. Come on. It's fun. And um, there are other people who, like me, are naturally bent towards this. I'd argue it's somewhere in all of us, actually. Uh, They find themselves or observe others as in process and are naturally bent towards finding ways to improve things, seeing opportunities for things to be better, to be the best that they could possibly be. The maximizers. You know what I'm talking about? Are there any other maximizers in the room? Let's see, hands. Come on. A few of you. I see you. So I had a close relationship with someone who saw the world through this lens. I want everything to be excellent. It's beautiful, right? He'd say things like, I'm a critical thinker. I I naturally see opportunities for things to be better, for things to be maximized. This is a beautiful thing. However, so much of mine and others' experience of this person was almost exclusively their criticisms of external things and almost never the internal and personal implications. I would often hear about the list of opportunities in their audit of a particular process. 
and never about how they experience the output or the product and its usefulness in their particular circumstance. And it often came across fairly harsh. And I believe a contributor to my experience of this harshness was that I didn't have any indication in this relationship that the standards that were being expected outwardly were reciprocally expected in this person's own life. In short, this person had higher standards of others than they had for themselves. Now this is for me and for you, maximizers, continuous improvement people, think people who like to see things tidy and in order and always in good shape. As with any gift, when it's not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, it can be distorted, misguided, and misused. See, critical thinking is beautiful. It's different than a critical spirit, though. Critical thinking is different than critical speaking. Critical thinking asks questions and ponders opportunities. A critical spirit makes statements. It's a heavy quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. I didn't give it to you. I'm sorry, Everett. Uh, But I'm going to read it for you. It's really heavy, and I just want you to sit with this for a moment. He said this, the church is imperfect, but woe to the man who takes pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. I'm going to read it again. The church is imperfect, but woe to the man who takes pleasure in pointing out her imperfections. And guys, what is the church? Yeah, the church is you. It's not just the staff or an organizational structure. It certainly includes those things, okay? Let's be fair. Let's be real. But it also includes you. See, a mind tuned to critical thinking is filled with humility, with wonder. But a critical spirit is filled with hubris, with pride. And what does pride do? It blinds us. It leads to destruction. Jesus called out the hypocrites in this text, those who have moral standards or beliefs to which they hold others to, that they are less concerned about holding themselves to. Right? Their own behavior doesn't match the standard. In other words, those who do not practice what they preach. Let's look back at verse 3 through 5 in the text. It says, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. A quick kind of side note, as we're talking about this idea of judgment, this text, Jesus uses familial language, right? He says, brother. So this is in the context. He's referencing how we interact with those within the church. He's not talking about those that do not see him as king, those that are not following him. Our judgment of those that don't follow Jesus is simply that they need the gospel. That's it. He's referencing familial relationship here. But Jesus in verses three through five, he references what? A plank of wood and a small splinter. 
And he does this as a means of drawing us to be on guard with our own hearts. He says the focus of our efforts for continuous improvement, for maximizing, for healing from sin, should first be on us. What he doesn't say, though, is that we should neglect the splinter. I want you to imagine this imagery that Jesus is painting for us for a second, like this image. We have a massive log in our skull where our eye should be. Okay? This would be obvious, right? Fair? Okay, that guy's got a big problem. Like if I took a moment and I'm the guy with the log sticking out, and I'm taking inventory, I would look in the mirror and I would say, oh, yeah, this is very evident. I've got a problem. There's a massive beam of wood sticking out of my skull where my eye should be. What would that imply? That would mean that I can't see, at least not clearly. Maybe it's only one eye, but still. Okay, now take that same imagination that you're using right now and think about the splinter. And as I was sitting in this text... I felt like the spirit was speaking in contrast of like the beam and the splinter, not about the size of the offense, but the intimacy of relationship that would be implied in helping someone with the splinter in their eye. Like, man, you'd have to get very close. There's some level of trust required. I don't just want Joe Schmo on the street coming in close and looking at my eye. Taking a beam of wood out, that's like, okay, there's a beam of wood. We got to get this thing out. We got to go to the emergency room. But the splinter, you've got to get up close. You've got to look for it. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye? No fun. I love my wife. Um, (laughs) I can't remember specifics, but there has been a time, at least a couple times probably in our relationship where she will have something small stuck in her eye and she'll ask me if I see it, right? It's uncomfortable. You're like, God, I can't find it. I can't see. Do you see something in my eye? Something feels off. Something's not right. I think there's something in my eye. And then I'll get in there, right? And I'll look really close. Typically, I never see it just because <laughs> it's usually like a yeah, microscopic thing. But I'll look closely and if she hadn't asked me, I certainly wouldn't have seen it. And, and hear me, like my wife is the closest person in my sphere. She is the closest human relationship that I have on this planet. To see the speck in her eye without her asking me to look for it seems like a very odd thing. But hear me, if my wife and I are that close to where I can see the splinter, where I can see the speck in her eye, that's not bad. Matter of fact, that's beautiful. Again, I told you we're in a season of life right now. We're parenting a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the same time. I long for moments where I get to be eye-to-eye with my wife like that. Man. Uh, But another thing, getting the splinter out, that's not easy work, right? Like, man, that's, if it, it's small, it's, there's a whole thing going on there. Eyes, I don't ever like to touch eyes, okay? Those of you that put in contacts, God bless you. I can't do it. I'd be crying. 
But there's a carefulness and a sensitivity, a level of focus and a gentleness that's required to do this in a way that doesn't damage the person's sight. Right? It requires caution, carefulness, sensitivity, and certainly gentleness. Now, all that considered, take that image, that that intimate familial relationship where you'd see the splinter in your brother or sister's eye and you're moving toward them to help them remove it. And as you do that, imagine you have a massive log in your skull where your eye should be. How effective are you going to be at helping with the splinter? Like, again, imagine, you're like, here, let me get in there. You got something here, and you've got a beam of wood sticking out of your skull. It's like, people be like, dude, we need to get you to the emergency room now. And here I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a splinter. I got to address it here. (laughs) Waving this thing around, smacking the person in the face with this massive log as I'm trying to get the splinter out. It seems silly, right? Like, (laughs) I don't have clear sight. Second, how in the world am I not only going to be able to see with the beam, but actually do the work required to gently, carefully remove the splinter? It's impossible. And friends, this is ministry. And every single person is called to ministry. This ministry of reconciliation, this ministry of the kingdom of God of helping people see clearly. Maybe it's not vocationally, but everyone who knows and loves Jesus is called to minister in his kingdom. And hear me, we will be ineffective in our ministry to others if we don't recognize our own sin, the log in our eye preventing us from seeing clearly and come humbly to others from that place. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Jesus' words in verse 5. Reform, not refrain. We have permission to judge, but it must look different. How? Our posture. Humility, not hypocrisy. In Galatians 6.1, Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, uh, and he says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. See, Paul recognizes here our tendency to be harsh with those struggling in sin or overtaken in wrongdoing, as he writes. And he therefore calls us to be gentle, And it seems that the immature are especially prone towards harshness as Paul commands the spiritually mature to this task of restoring a person with a gentle spirit. Are we up to this task, this task of restoring someone with a gentle spirit? Part of the the reason harshness is common for the spiritually mature is because we often don't recognize our vulnerability. And man, I fall prey to this. And you're probably like me, pride creeps in. It blinds us, we don't know. (laughs) We've forgotten how vulnerable we are and how easy it is to stumble. 
And our perceived strength is really a weakness that blinds us and makes us ineffective ministers. When we lose sight of the root of all sin, the sin of pride, we are vulnerable and it will likely lead us to judge others in the way that Jesus prohibits in verse one. In contrast, spiritual people Paul's talking about here in Galatians 6 are not spiritual because their ability to conquer sin or not just because of their ability to conquer sin, but also their humility. They recognize they are always vulnerable to failure, as the text says. They recognize their need for Jesus and his grace, which draws them even closer to God and makes them even more gracious with others. The spiritually mature address their budget or lack thereof before helping others with personal finance. They address their own diet and fitness regimen before becoming a personal trainer. They address their own need for Jesus' grace and how he meets that need before addressing the sins of others. See, these people deal with the log in their own eye before addressing the speck in their brother's eye. And no doubt we see this in Paul who called himself in in the scriptures the chief of sinners and the least of all God's people. See, humility results in gentleness. And both are required to restore a person. Both are required to help someone with their splinter. According to the Bible, Christians ought to judge, not condemningly, not punitively, but we judge. With the presence of God, through his Holy Spirit, we discern between good, bad, right or wrong, starting with ourselves, but not limited to ourselves. And as you do this, it will make a massive kingdom impact for your benefit and the benefit of others around you. Clear sight, restored sight, seeing things the way they actually are and not with all of the deception that culture and the world would bring at us, seeing Jesus' kingdom. So we have permission. We reform, not refrain from judgment, but it requires a particular posture. Humility, not hypocrisy. I have to ask, would those who know you, those who know you best, would they say that you're humble or hypocritical? Would they say that you're harsh or gentle? Permission, posture, practice. Practice, the last thing in this text that I believe God wants to highlight for us this morning is so foundational to what we've already talked about around judgment that we do judge, but Christians' judgment in Jesus' kingdom looks so much different than the world than the flesh. The third and final point, if you're taking notes, that this text highlights for us is a practice with regard to judgment. Jesus gives us permission to judge. He calls us to reform how we judge instead of refrain. He gives us our step to reform. He says it's with the posture of humility, not hypocrisy. Then he calls us to practice this in a particular way in love for us. He is the good shepherd and he desires to protect his sheep and we see it so clearly here in our last verse, verse six. 
should be up there for you. It says this, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. I remember when I first read this passage and, and several times uh, revisiting it for a while, each time I would see it, this last verse seemed almost out of place for me, right? It's like, we're talking about this thing. I'm with you, I'm with you. And then he goes, Psh! don't cast your pearls before pigs. You're like, where do we just get over here? How do we get here so fast? What just happened? It was like a hard U-turn, right? But as I sat in it more, I could actually see it's Jesus fleshing out his point more deeply and giving us a practical implication of how our rightly judging is actually really good for us. How it benefits the message of the kingdom and how it protects us from harm. Again, it says, verse six, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. What does all this mean? Holy to dogs, toss your pearls before pigs. Again, context here is critical, right? Dogs were beastly animals in that region in that time period. They were animals who roamed the streets in packs. They were like feral, you know, kind of wild. They were looking for food and attacking weaker animals. They were like vicious and ferocious. Like think if we dropped wolves just right into Smecula. Be like, Ooh, okay, you see, a, you see a wolf, you're gonna be like, ugh. You see a dog now, you're like, hey, bubble, come here, do, do, do. That wasn't the case for them. Dogs were a symbol of immorality, of barbarism and vulgarity and ignorance. Pretty strong words that Jesus is using. And pigs were officially unclean, according to God's law in Leviticus. And they likely also scavenged for food. Pigs are voracious and compulsive eaters. And they're not really selective about the food that they eat. Pigs can become aggressive when hungry. I don't know if you knew this. Giving a herd of pigs something inedible when they expect food merely antagonizes them. Remember initially how we talked about the message of the kingdom, how, how the gospel makes a judgment of all people, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there are people who not only do not want it, which are addressed here in verse six, but there are also those who are hostile toward it, opposed to it. And hear me, that's not just outside the church. There are those who participate with the church that do not want and or are opposed to the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus' way. A Christian's commitment to speak truth about sin to another must be guided by discernment and discretion, we learn from verse 6. Christians should not go about giving counsel, rebuke, or comfort to one who is stiff-necked or resistant, someone who is scornful or dismissive and will not benefit from it. These kinds of people will only be exacerbated exasperated, excuse me, same, same, same. And they'll be enraged by that good gift. If you throw a pearl to a pig, he'll resent it just as if you'd thrown a common stone at him. Loving correction is seen as a threat. This person that I was telling you about before, this person that permitted me to help them grow in their commitments to grow into wholeness, 
to become a consistent, trustworthy, reliable human, just like Jesus, like that what he says and what he does are not two different things, but one and the same. Ultimately, he rejected the pearl that I was casting. The pearl that Jesus is referencing is the message of the kingdom. He's referencing, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You're in need of a savior and I've come. I'm here to renew you and make you like me. Turn toward me. I was presenting my friend with a concern that there was an ongoing pattern of sin in their life and that God may be presenting him with an opportunity to repent of and he rejected that. And this rejection was an ongoing pattern. And the consistent rejection hurt everyone involved, whether they even could recognize it or not. And this rejection was not always, hear me, it was not always with words. Though it did come to that point, it was most often with actions. See, in verse 6, Jesus in his love and his kindness is shepherding and protecting his sheep from the pain that will come if we persist in practicing judgment with those who consistently reject and oppose it. Reform, not refrain. Jesus gives us permission. And he shared the posture, humility, not hypocrisy. And he gives the context in which to practice this Christian judgment where there's receptivity, not rejection. When you approach someone in love and humility because you see the splinter and they reject you, receive the rejection for what it is. It's ultimately a rejection of the lordship of Jesus, a rejection of his kingdom. And I know it's painful. I know it's painful. And so some of you right now, you're thinking, so what, are we just supposed to give up on people? God, no, no, no. Change your strategy. Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When someone rejects your loving judgment and a call to repentance, you change your strategy to prayer. When you persist and continue to call people to repentance, people who are rejecting that message of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of God at hand, verse six says, they will trample your message under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. It's gonna harm you. Friends, what a treasure and a gift this shepherding of Jesus is. Jesus' desire to restore and renew all things. That's his desire. He desires that, that all of us would see clearly. He desires that there'd be no log in anyone's eye and no splinter. And he wants to include us in that work. The work of restoring and renewing all things, especially people. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and call up the band if you guys would come on up and if you could just lay a little 
sonic hospitality down for us. Just so that you guys know too, like when we play music behind, it's not like a form of manipulation, it's actually hospitality. It's like lighting a candle, but for your ears and for your soul. <clears throat> so reform, not refrain. Jesus permits, in fact, he commands that we judge rightly. And he shared the posture, humility, not hypocrisy. And he gives us the context in which to practice, where there's receptivity, not rejection. Permission, posture, practice. And I believe this morning that there are two ditches that Jesus is warning us not to fall into as he makes these commands about judging. Two ditches. The first, hypocrisy. That critical spirit of judgment, pride and harshness. How do you know if you've fallen into that ditch? If you spend more time examining the shortcomings of others than your own. The other ditch is abdication or think avoidance. I don't ever judge anyone. How do you know if you've fallen into this ditch? You find yourself justifying not talking to people about their sin. Who am I to say anything to anyone? It's not my place. I don't want to rock the boat. Friends, that is a misunderstanding of who you are in Christ. You're more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks. That's how you know if you've fallen into that ditch. What ditch are you prone to fall into? Or maybe for some of you, what ditch might you find yourself in right now, today, in this very moment? To the abdicator, to the avoider. Maybe there are those that are close to you with splinters in their eye. And you can see it. Maybe there are people who have a pattern of being critical of others and you're not addressing it. What might repentance look like for you? Maybe it looks like having some hard conversations. For the hypocrite, maybe someone brings something to you and you respond by deflecting or trying to justify or blame shifting or simply pointing out flaws and finding fault in others. Yeah, well, you did that and they did and he did. And if it was just, you're more concerned with the splinter in their eye than the log in your own. What might repentance look like for you? Maybe apologizing for your harshness and seeking forgiveness from God and others might look like humility. For these folks all throughout scripture, I just need to say this. Jesus appears to be more opposed to the hypocrite than the abdicator. So if you find yourself there, can I just warn you of the danger that you're in? Can I caution you and encourage you to repent and receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus? Because without it, as Dorian so adequately shared two weeks ago, you're living in opposition to Jesus, the creator of the universe. 
the one who took nails through his limbs so that he could be close to you. Friends, Jesus is full of grace and mercy for both those in the pit of abdication of avoidance and the pit of hypocrisy and the critical spirit. Jesus desires to direct us away from and pull us out of these pits. He desires to pour out his grace and his mercy on us and give us clear sight by removing every log and every splinter from our eyes so that we can become the people we've been created to be. And his blood poured out on the cross is proof. Jesus' way is better than ours. Jesus as king is better than me and than you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. You have every right to like make final judgment right now on me and you instead. Instead, you move toward me in grace and in mercy to help me see the beam of wood sticking out of my skull that prevents me from seeing things clearly. There's nothing more valuable than you, Jesus. You are of supreme worth. You are the treasure of my soul, and I fail to see it so often. And in your love and your kindness, you continually reveal yourself and desire that I would see clearly and you move toward me through your people like you've included us in the work of bringing sight to the blind it's amazing it's miraculous it's beautiful God help us to be a people that don't think too highly of ourselves Help us to be a people, as your word says, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. More than, more than my way, more than my desires, I want your way and your desires because your way and your desires are so much better. I cannot bring peace to the world. I cannot do that apart from being a part of your kingdom. you do the work and you invite us into it. Thank you for that truth. I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would convict where it's necessary, that you would minister to the hearts and souls of people, that we would not be a people that are, that are moved and that are, that are fueled primarily by fear, but rather by faith, that what you say is right, true, trustworthy, that it's good, that your way is actually good and that it's better. Thank you, Lord for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your good shepherding, for the ways that you protect us, the ways that you fuel us and empower us. You are so worthy of praise. You are so worthy of praise. Thank you for never giving up on me and never giving up on any single person in this room. I love you, God, and I come to you praying all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Love you. Hook me up. Thanks, Harry. Okay, will you stand with me if you're able? 
I want to call the ministry team forward. If you guys could just make yourself available. Um, these are trusted men and women that are going to be available to, to pray for those of you, uh, most of us in the room, who genuinely could use ministry this morning. Um, do you feel that weight in the room? That like, for, I think for most of us in the room, there's that sense, that feeling of like, oh, like I'm, I'm kind of missing the mark on some, some things relationally. Hear me. That's really good. It's really, really healthy because it's the pathway to freedom. You see, culture wants to tell you that your performance, uh, your report card, if you will, your resume on how you behave, on what you say, what you think, what you do, that that defines you. And that your worth is based on that. Jesus has a, a better word, a better way. And it's, it starts with showing you a mirror of yourself, the reality of your need, right? The reality of like, oh man, I really am missing the mark. And then him coming in and lavishing you with transformational grace, forgiveness, mercy, love that literally like reorients your inner being to change your desires. So hear me, if you're feeling that weight right now of what Mark just shared, shared the, 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 the teaching of Jesus that the reality of like, you know what the truth is? Like Mark, I love how Mark said there's two pits, you know, the hypocrite and the abdicator. They're like, oh, I'm not going to talk to anybody about their sin because I don't want to rock the boat and who am I? Or the person who's harsh and is just like not really ta- they're spending more time criticizing others than they are actually examining their heart. There's two, dip, there's two uh, pits that you can fall into, right? Here's the thing. Every single one of us falls into both of those pits. It's not just like, oh, I have a propensity for this or I have a propensity for that. It's like, we just take turns diving into these do dangerous pits, and Jesus shows us a different way, a better way. And the pathway that Jesus is leading us into as the great shepherd is one of going, hey, here's reality. Here's the mirror. Here's what it looks like. You see the log? And then he doesn't stop there. He goes, you need grace. You need forgiveness for your sin. It's undeserved, but he says, you're worth it to me. And let me show you the hands, the holes in my hands that show how much you're worth to me. So hear me. If you're here this morning and you recognize a pattern of either one of those pits or both of like, I'm not going to talk to people in my life about their sin because I fear them more than I fear the Lord. I want their approval more than I want the kingdom of God on the earth. Or you recognize you're being harsh. You recognize like I'm spending more time evaluating others than I am about honestly evaluating myself. If either one of those are you, which, to be honest with you, it's the entire flipping room, myself included, what if we spent the rest of our gathering coming, like, this is like kind of a continuation from Dee's preach, coming boldly to the throne of grace, taking Jesus up on his offer, actually demonstrating faith, which is trust, and going, I actually believe you have forgiveness for me. I actually believe you'll pour it out of my life. And I believe that forgiveness will do some transformational work in me so that I don't, I, I'm not, I don't slip into either one of those pits. If that's you, you need to receive prayer. You've got to, because you cannot do it on your own. The only reason why someone's not going to come forward for prayer is pride, which is a continuation of diving into each one, either one of those, those dangerous pits. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to spend the rest of our gathering, we got, I don't know, 15-ish minutes, and I want us to respond to Jesus' invitation, and I want us to honor him with praise 
because he loves you and I enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. And he doesn't stop there. He goes, here's the truth about you, but here's the truth about me. I'm the grace giver. You need grace. You need mercy. You need forgiveness. You need transformation. That's what we need, friends. And we have an opportunity. It's not enough time, but we have an opportunity now to to drink deeply of the well of grace. Are you going to? He's not going to force you to, but the invitation's always open. Come and drink. Come and drink. Your soul's thirsty. Come and drink. Be be forgiven. Be released. Be free. That's the invitation. Okay? These are trusted men and women that can minister, that will pray over you, that would love to. The band's going to lead us in a time of responding, offering God praise because he's worthy. He's amazing. He's kind. He's faithful. He's forgiving. He's gracious. Can we respond together? Can we? Beautiful. Let's enjoy him together. Lead us. We love you.